listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. A lot to talk about, things going on in the courts. We're going to keep our eye on the chair tosser and the cenotaph defacer. Any developments there, we'll bring them to you. But we want to begin this hour by following the money, keeping the eye on the cash. Because much has been made about a change in tone and a reversal by the Ford government, but the proof is in the pudding. So let's talk about the deficit and let's talk about the numbers. Ontario deficit, Ontario's deficit now is expected to be $9 billion. That is down from the projection of $10.3 billion, but is still higher than last year's deficit of $7.4 billion. A lot of numbers to sort through and to help me with that is Ontario's Minister of Finance, Rod Phillips. Hello, Minister. Hello, Alan. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. Thank you so much for being on the program. I know you have been out talking about the fall economic statement, which in layman's term is a kind of a mini budget, a little bit of an outline for the for the government and what it's doing. You have decided to split the extra revenue you have between spending more and going after the deficit. Why? Alan, one of the things that uh, people made clear to us was that they expect us to balance competing priorities, you know, putting some money back in people's pockets, making sure we're investing in health and education and other services, and, of course, tackling tackling the deficit. So, you know, we were fortunate uh, that uh, as the economy has continued to do well, in part because of the policies of our government, but largely because of the hard work of Ontarians, we've had some additional revenue, $1.6 billion of additional revenue. And so we were able to, in the statement last uh, last week, say that we're going to, as you said, pay that deficit down a little bit faster. So it was supposed to be $10.3 billion this year. We think it's going to be $9 billion. That's our projection. But also put $1.3 billion um, back into education, into health care, um, into kids and, and children's services. So, you know, that's, that's what people expect from our government, a balanced approach, and that's what we're trying to deliver. The Premier has long warned of a carbon tax recession because of the imposed carbon tax from the federal government, considering that your revenues are up and the economy is doing well. Is it time to retire that fiction? Well, you know, anytime you add the kind of costs that a carbon tax is going to to families and to businesses, you know, that creates the conditions where where the economy uh, can slow down. But that said, currently um, we are we're experiencing growth. Now it's 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 a very moderate growth based on you know history. Um, our own projections about 1.5 percent growth are less than the private sector economists because we want to be prudent. Um, but it, you know it's fair to say you know all you have to do is look up and see the the cranes in the in the sky. About a quarter of all the construction cranes in North America are right here in Ontario. So so things are going along positively. But but that's why we have to you know stay on that agenda of trying to make sure that. We're you know making it easier for businesses to to hire more people and uh, and of course that that creates the the beneficial uh, situation we had where we're able to balance off uh, you know managing that uh, reducing the tax burden for people making sure that we're investing in health and education and 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 balance the budget. In terms of choices that you've made, you have decided to lower the small business tax rate from three point five percent to three point two percent, and once that program is fully implemented by 2021-2022. That's $95 million in terms of cost to the Treasury. That's a choice, Minister. And there are students out there who would say cutting OSAP is also a choice, and you have chosen business over students and education. 
You know, in in every instance, and this is uh, what governing is about, it is making those choices. So we are seeing, you know, record investments, $1.2 billion more invested in education this year than last year. But when it comes to small business, and you know this, that about a third of all the private sector jobs in the province are coming from small business. So reducing the small business tax rate by 8.7% means that those businesses will have more money to invest, more money to hire other people. All of these good things we want to do, you know, balance the budget, put money back in people's pockets, invest in healthcare and education, require a vibrant economy. I was speaking to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce uh, this morning. You know, that it's, it's, that's where the, the revenue comes from. You know, the, the excess revenue that we have this year is the result of higher corporate taxes, which come from businesses being more successful, and higher personal taxes, which come from people, you know, 254,000 more people have jobs. So, you know, it's to manage each of those balances and, and, and do the best we can. You, your government has passed legislation capping wage for public sector workers to wage increases to 1%. We are currently in negotiations with education sector workers. If the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, comes to you and says, I cannot get a deal with more, without having a more than 1% wage increase, what will you do? Well, Alan, you know, we'll, we'll cross any bridges uh, when we come to them. And uh, well, that Minister Letcher, he's been doing a very capable job. of. But all of, of the uh, all of the unions are saying that 1% is not acceptable, Minister. And, but the, so I won't, again, I won't speak to the negotiations because they're ongoing. And Minister Letcher is doing a great job on, on that front. But I'll tell you the one thing that is, uh, is important for people to recognize is that about 50% of the costs of the Ontario government uh, are in compensation. Um, not just for compensation for people who work for the Ontario government, but for the broader public sector. So that's why we've you know, put forward a reasonable and, and a time-limited approach to trying to make sure that that, that aspect of, um, of, our, of our costs can be managed. And remember, we're not talking about cuts or rollbacks. We're talking about time-limited and, and raises. Except for the unions are saying that is an impediment to getting a deal and have, are planning to challenge it in court. Well, and and you know they'll they'll take the approach they do. Obviously, we've been successful getting not not just uh, fifty five thousand QP workers agreeing to it, but a number of other agreements um, that respect that that limitation that that uh, that we've uh, we've indicated is just you know necessary given the state of the province's finances. I mean, I haven't talked about it, Alan, but you know we are the largest sub sovereign debtor in the world. We owe three hundred and fifty three billion dollars. We pay thirteen billion dollars in interest payments alone. It's the fourth largest expense. I put that in context for people. As you know, I used to be Minister of Conservation, uh, Environment and Parks, and, and our expenditures on the environment in Ontario, which are, which are the highest of any province, we pay our creditors more in interest in 17 days than we do for environment, conservation, and parks. It's not really fair to, it's not apples to apples for the rest of the provinces, though, and, and you know that. So, I mean, I, you can bring out that number, which is scary and it's big, but it, it's not really apples to apples to the rest of the country. Well, you know, it's a good point for the rest of the country. Of all the money that's spent on Ministry of the Environment, it's $1.6 billion. And, you know, we're spending $11 billion plus more than that on interest. So the only reason I raise that is not to not to be scary. We, it's the last thing we'd want to do. But it's to, to point out that when you have not managed your finances correctly, just like a personal finance or a business, all that interest starts to crowd out essential investments, things like the environment. Uh, and so that's why we also have to, you know, have that balanced approach. Money for services, as I said, more for education this year than ever before by the Ontario government, $1.2 billion more. Bring down that uh, deficit figure so we can stop paying quite so much interest over time. And then, of course, you know, put some money back in people's pockets. You, you mentioned the deficit. 
The premier of this province repeated in the House recently that the deficit that the Liberals left was $15 billion. You know that not to be true. I'm wondering if you've spoken with the premier about what is the actual true figure. Well, you know, we know that the Independent Financial Commission, which was an independent third party, we asked to review um, the state of the finances. And remember, this was after, Alan, 15 years of obviously another party being in government, uh, a party that and a government that had missed eight of the last 13, sorry, or missed or been late for eight of the last 13 financial reporting um, dates and had also not had the book signed off by the Auditor General for a couple of years. So it wasn't surprising we got someone outside to look at it. They're the ones who confirmed the $15 billion debt. It was, it was a political panel put together for political reasons, and the $15 billion was not accurate. It was questioned at the time, and it's been proven not to be accurate. Why does the Premier keep saying it? Yeah, well, no, I guess I would I would uh, challenge that it's been proven not to be accurate, Alan. I think when you looked at the off... Your, enti- your government, government says doing, that that is not the number. Your government well, itself because, says that it wasn't $15 billion. Well, no, our, our government took steps to reduce the cost. We were spending $40 million a day more, Alan, when we took over than was coming in. So, you know, not surprisingly, we stemmed the bleeding. We took the necessary steps to try to reduce some of those expenditures, unless it took some some political heat for that, but that was what was necessary. And and now we're on a very, you know, I think predictable and prudent path to balance. And, and I think that's what people expect. Again, balancing those other priorities that we have as well. But, uh, you know, that's why we were happy to see the, uh, the deficit number uh, be lower than was projected in the last budget. And, you know, we'll keep on that track to balance the budget by 2023. And when, when we made that choice, I like to say this, when we made the choice to balance by 2023. I mean, some people, as it always the case, said it should have been sooner. Um, but we did that because we knew we wanted to do the things we're doing as well, which is invest in health and education and provide the financial relief for families we've done through the low-income tax credit and the care child tax credit. You know, those are the things we're trying to balance. It's Again, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, that these the priorities aren't competing. They are. Um, but we will do our best to balance them because that's what Ontarians want. Rod Phillips, he's Ontario's Minister of Finance, and joined me live on the line. Minister, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Alan. Always enjoy being on with you. When we come back on the Alan Carter Radio program, we are going to talk more about the numbers with Martin Redcon from the Toronto Star. That $353 billion number that you heard, let's put that in context. And also, you heard the minister there, investing in education and in health care. Is that true? Because the other side of the aisle says says it's completely the opposite, a reality check. Welcome back to the program. Straight ahead, we're going to be talking about the impeachment trial, the impeachment proceedings happening south of the border. We'll get you caught up on that. Plus, a fascinating discussion about what constitutes a citizen's arrest. What does that mean? If you found somebody in your house stealing your stuff, can you detain them and make a quote-unquote citizen's arrest? The Ontario Court of Appeal, the top court in this province, has weighed in on that. A fascinating discussion on that coming right up. But first, a little Focus Ontario. It is time to follow the money. Ontario has the highest subnational debt in the world, clocking in at $353 billion. The Progressive Conservative Party, both in opposition and now in government, has made reducing that number a central policy plank. 
My next guest wonders if that focus is misguided. Martin Redcon is the Queen's Park columnist for the Toronto Star. Welcome back to Focus Ontario. Thanks, Alan. When we talk about the size of the debt and the deficit we have, those are scary, scary numbers. They are scary, but the sky, and they scared me for a long time, but the sky is not falling yet. And yeah, it's the largest subnational, but you know, no one ever says that Ontario and all Canadian provinces are unique creatures globally. No other jurisdictions really have those kinds of constitutional spending powers for health care, police, education, universities, nuclear energy. So our subnational debt is big. Our, our Ontario debt, that phrase, subnational, it sounds like it's, like it's uh, astronomical. But the, the fact is that Ontario has significant spending power and significant taxing power. And lenders around the world, especially in New York, are lining up to still lend us money. So it's not completely out of whack, but it's high. That brings us to the fall economic statement recently released here in Ontario. And numbers are good. The money's coming in. And we've seen how kind of a very significant change in tone from this government how it's going to spend its money. New finance minister, new tone. So Rod Phillips is not crying wolf in the same way that his predecessor, Vic Fideli, did. Vic Fideli paid a price for that. He was thrown to the wolves by Doug Ford just 10 weeks after releasing his spring budget because it was the death of a thousand cuts. Rod Phillips has benefited, as Quebec has this year, by a reasonably strong economy and used those revenues to go 50-50. 50% to reduce the deficit from what Fideli was projecting, 50% into restoring some of the spending cuts, so it'll go into, into program spending. So he's trying to find a middle path that Fideli didn't see, and that's part, part of the change in tone. Is the deficit really the boogeyman it once was? We see this government now still saying, okay, well, we'll get to black, but over the horizon after the next election. Yeah, over the next election is very much over the horizon. So that means in the next mandate. So vote for us, we won't deliver. Next time we'll deliver. Look, in the federal election, uh, we saw that people in Ontario and across the, pro across the country were not terrified by the deficit because uh, Justin Trudeau promised to balance the budget by now, and he hasn't. He broke that promise. And Canadians did not punish him massively for that change in path. You know, years ago, Jack Layton promised to have a balanced budget. Tom Mulcair promised a balanced budget, and the Liberals federally outflanked them. So the idea that, that voters are, are petrified or terrified by a deficit or a debt is exaggerated politically. It may also be exaggerated economically because it is a sustainable debt, even if it is worrisome. For me, too, I don't like it being that high. But as a percentage of our economy, if the economy keeps growing and the debt percentage stays relatively stable, then it isn't quite that scary. We're still, we're, we're still paying, we're now paying less as a percentage of the economy to service that debt than we did about 10 years ago. Can we get to some truth on spending because the opposition to the Ford government keeps shouting cuts and the Ford government keeps saying, and we're increasing spending. And I think the public is confused as to where the truth is. It is fuzzy. And we, you know, part of it is, is semantics. And without splitting hairs, there is a difference between increasing spending and restoring cuts that you announced several months ago. So in the, in the Fideli budget this spring, he announced significant cuts or significant, he dialed down the spending. Population is increasing, 
promises were made for childcare, for poverty, for for uh, welfare payments. Uh, Fidelity dialed down, bent those cost curves. Rod Phillips is now increasing those spending curves up a notch. So, so what's a cut? It depends if it's a reduction in planned spending. And budgets should count for something. So if you decide you're going to dial down the spending, that's money that you promised and isn't coming anymore. So those were cuts, and they're now restoring it a little bit. Also, $15 billion. The $15 billion fiction that the Ford government said so often and we know is debunked. Why is the Premier still standing in the House saying $15 billion? Well, be careful because he might call in again. Last time you and I talked about his numbers on your radio show, Alan, he called in to complain and said he almost drove into a hydro pole. I don't know if he was behind the wheel. But uh, look, the, the, in going into the last election last year, the the budget was supposed to be $6.7 billion. Doug Ford, after he took power, claimed it was $15 billion and that anybody who did that on our tax return would be thrown in jail, in so many words. The auditor said, well, it's $11.7 billion. Part of that was a $5 billion accounting dispute. But it turns out that the government itself now says the budget deficit for last year is not $15 billion, but $7.4 billion. Half of what they said it was, and plus or minus what the Liberals said. So many numbers, and it is tough to find the truth in all of it, but it is so important, as we started the segment, to follow the money. Barton, great to see you again. Thank you, Alan. You can watch Focus Ontario this weekend, Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 11.30 a.m. I hope you can join me for that. What constitutes a citizen's arrest? Well, Ontario's top court has now ordered a new trial for a couple from Caledon, Ontario, who were found guilty of unlawful confinement after they tied up two young men who were caught stealing from their property. In a unanimous ruling, the Court of Appeal says the trial judge made mistakes in his, stru- in his instruction to the jury in the citizen's arrest case. The court says that the judge failed to direct the jury on the issue of whether the two men consented to their prolonged confinement. During the trial, court heard that two men were trying to steal stainless steel from the homeowner's yard for a third consecutive night back in August of 2008. That's when they were caught. The two men testified that the couple confronted them, held them hostage, assaulted them, and demanded money in exchange for not calling the police. But the couple deny those allegations and said after they tied up the men with zip ties, the pair pleaded with them not to call police and offered to repay them for the previous thefts. Andrew Mchinsky is a lawyer for the couple, representing the couple, who are now going to have a new trial and joins me on the line. Hi, Andrew. Good afternoon. How are you? What has the court really truly decided here in terms of what constitutes a lawful citizen's arrest? I think the court uh, has upheld previous law in terms of a citizen's arrest, and I think it's a lesson for everyone to be a bit careful when performing a citizen's arrest, because when you perform one, uh, you need to be doing so for an indictable offense. That's a serious offense. And uh, when you do that, you can't use too much force, and you need to call the police forthwith, which is basically as, as soon as possible. What made this particular case different, though, is that after performing a citizen's arrest, uh, according to the property owners, uh, to the couple, the the two thieves asked them not to call the police, but asked them to negotiate 
and uh, deal with the matter out of court. And so at that point, it was no longer a citizen's arrest, but potentially uh, the two boys were consenting being held uh, on the property. That question of consent, I think, will be thorny for some people listening. And how can you consent to confinement? Um, it is a good question, and that's a question that the court grappled with. Um, but there is a variety of situations in society when uh, we can consent to uh, something unpleasant happening in order to avoid something else unpleasant happening. And in this case, the two thieves obviously didn't want to get arrested, didn't want to get a criminal record themselves, and said, look, call our parents and we will uh, figure this issue out, which is exactly what the property owners did. Was the problem, the ongoing problem here, this delay in calling the police? Had the couple called the police immediately, this would not be a situation? That's right. And so a valid citizen's arrest, you're required as soon as you have an opportunity and you handle the situation, you have to call the police right away because you're simply detaining uh, people you find committing a criminal offense in order for the police to come. Andrew, when is the new trial for this couple expected to take place? That will be a decision uh, for the Crown Attorney in Brampton. That's where the original trial was held. Uh, and they will be the ones scheduling it. I have not heard word yesterday given that uh, the Court of Appeal just came out with the decision. Andrew Menchinsky. He is a lawyer representing the couple who will now have a new trial. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. When we come back on the Alan Carter Radio program, we will head down south. Are you watching the impeachment inquiry proceedings? Is it your favorite show? Is it better than Days of Our Lives? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Do you practice safe phone plugging? Do you, have you thought about this? Because you really should think. Because plugging your phone into a public USB charger, oh my God, you don't know what you're going to get. High-tech scammers have figured out how to tamper with public USB power outlets to infect them with malware, which then attacks your device when you plug it in. The countermeasure, says L.A. Deputy District Attorney Luke Sisak. Use an AC power outlet, not a USB charging. Take AC and car chargers for your devices when you travel. And consider buying a portable charger. Or a device commonly called a USB condom, which blocks the data transfer pins on your cable, allowing only the power pins to make contact. Jim Ryan, ABC News. I, this, I learned something new every day. I had not heard of this. There is a phone condom you can get, a USB condom. Did you know this? Did you? Did, am I the now only I one? Now I know. And I have so many questions. Do they come in flavors? Can I get a ribbed phone condom? I'm just, I have questions. I have okay. questions and no answers. I just, I'll leave that there. Let's go south of the border where we have some breaking news on the Roger Stone front. Roger Stone has been found guilty of lying to Congress and tampering with a witness about his efforts to learn about the anti-secrecy group WikiLeaks. And the U.S. president has taken to Twitter about that. Meanwhile, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yavankovitch, 
I think I mispronounced that, Yevanovich, pardon me, says she was devastated when she learned that President Donald Trump wanted to remove her from her post. She says she was told by a colleague that the color drained from her face as she read a rough transcript of the phone call between Trump and Ukraine's president. In that transcript, Trump says Yevanovich was, quote, going to go through some things. She told lawmakers at the second House impeachment hearing today what it felt like when she read that. She's going to go through some things. It didn't sound good. It sounded like a threat. Reggie Cicchini is with Global National. He's got a big tub of popcorn. He's sitting on a couch and he's watching this thing go by. Reggie, how are you? Reggie's got popcorn. He's getting popcorn. He's getting it out getting of his the teeth. And, there uh, he is. Realizing that sometimes using a, a landline is not the easiest <laughs> thing to do anymore. <laughs> Welcome to the program, Reggie. What do you make of what you heard so far today? Uh, some of the testimony from uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch has been um, has been what we expected. I mean, this is a career diplomat, one of the most highest ranking in the United States, with more than three decades of experience behind her, and she is uh, well not directly connected to this phone call with U.S. President Trump and President Zelensky. She's kind of painting an overall picture of uh, what appears to be a uh, parallel foreign policy campaign with some corruption tied into it that she's unfortunately fallen victim to. And what are we expecting to happen throughout the course of the day? Is she done? Or do we have more today? Well, so Democrats took the brunt of the morning with counsel and uh, the chair making their statements and asking their questions. Then they took a recess to go to, uh, to deal with votes in the House. Republican counsel has just started up their questioning right now. It's been very uh, kind of matter of fact. He's not really trying to uh, to uh, you know bury her under any kind of scandal right now. Uh, but I think Republicans are really going to have a hard time this afternoon when it comes time for their questioning of Ambassador Yovanovitch because she is so well decorated and has uh, been in this position for so long under both Republican and Democratic presidents that it's going to be hard to try and uh, tarnish and tatter her reputation, uh, which precedes her at length. Here is more from the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yevanovich. Terrible, honestly. Um, I mean, after 33 years of service to our country, um, it was terrible. It's not the way I wanted my career to end. There she's talking about how her career ended, and I will issue an open apology to her for now mispronouncing her name three times during this segment. Uh, Reggie, what is the true impact of this testimony? Uh, It's going to be incredible for Democrats to be able to listen to what she has to say and answer the questions that are asked of her of Republicans, because ultimately uh, she is discussing uh, the fact that she was pulled out of her position in the middle of the night uh, with very little understanding of what was going on, simply because there were uh, a group of people that included the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, starting up a smear campaign about her because uh, ultimately they saw her as uh, an object standing in the way of what is likely to be the president's uh, personal political motives of opening up investigations into Joe Biden. This is an ambassador who was known for being a part of the anti-corruption wall in Ukraine to try and weed it out and was removed because she was simply not allowing for something that seemed to be corrupt to take place. Meanwhile, POTUS is on Twitter for this and also the Roger Stone verdict. I, I imagine you have more than one TV screen going right now. 
I have four TV screens happening right now. Uh, you know, the president's tweet uh, about Ambassador Yovanovitch is, is injurious. It's, it's potentially damaging for the Republicans right now. Uh, even members of, of Fox News were saying that this is something that could be looked at as witness tampering uh, and be used to draft a potential article of impeachment. The president didn't really do the party any good by taking to Twitter while Yovanovitch was up there. We now have uh, President Trump tweeting uh, within the last 20 minutes or so uh, of Roger Stone's uh, conviction at a courthouse in Washington, D.C., saying they're going to send him to jail for many years, and then, you know, is, is going back to his playlist of talking about crooked Hillary and Strzok and Page and Schiff and, and the Steele dossier, but at the end of the day, uh, Stone is being sentenced because he lied to Congress about his contacts with WikiLeaks. Reggie Cicchini has got a lot on his mind, and he's a global national reporter and has been on the program before, and always great to have you on the program. Thank you, Reggie. Thank you. My goodness, we have made it. It is Friday. What a crazy, crazy week it has been. So much to talk about. I am pleased to welcome my regular Friday contributors to the program. Laura Hensley is with Global News Online. And Mira Estrada is the host of Cultured, which could be heard on this radio station every Saturday night at 8. Thank you so much for being with me. Let's begin, shall we, with the Karens. What is this thing about Karen? Who is Karen and why are all the millennials accusing each other and us, the old folks, of being Karens? Laura? Okay, so the Karen generation is Gen X. So I guess that falls within people who are 38 to 53 years old. And the younger generations are calling this generation Karens because apparently they're racist, they're anti-vaxxers, they don't believe in climate change. They're, they're essentially the worst. So, so this is not this is a, like a step down from OK Boomer. It's a different generational. It's like, so it's OK Boomer, yes. and now you got Karens. Yes. Mira? Just call me Karen. Apparently. So Just apparently I am Karen. a Karen. Why are you a Karen? Because I fall into this age demographic. Are you okay, well uh, are you are you all I of these things? I'm highly offended that, to be called a Karen. Yeah, I, I take this from BuzzFeed. Gen Z is taken to calling Gen X. Yes, yeah, so my the kids Karen are calling generation. Me Karen. Karens are quote privileged from a system the boomers set up for themselves and are now acting entitled and working against Gen Z is the quote in this piece. Is that true? Is it true, Alan? Karen? There's two I, Karens here. There's a lot of Karens <laughs> in the room. There's a few Karens in this room. I'll tell you a quick story. I didn't I didn't know anything about this Karen Neither thing. Did I. I did I knew nothing about Which this. Which proves that we're Karens. Exactly, precisely. <laughs> um, and my daughter says to me, "Oh, hey, I, I set up a fake um, a fake Facebook account. I'm Karen Smith." <laughs> and she posts Instapot recipes and other soccer mom content on there, and she's just trolling other Karens. So this is the thing. The Instapot makes me feel like I am a Karen. I love the Instapot. I love me some Instapot recipes. Oh, but that's not offensive, you know? No. Instapot's not offensive. I think the issue that the younger generation has is that they think the Karens are, you know, the people who are actively working against them. They're the ones, if you've ever seen that meme, like, can I speak to your manager with that Karen haircut, the, the mom haircut? No. Does yeah. it ring any bells? Yeah. yeah. I'm just checking my, my <laughs> meme checker here. <laughs> 
Okay, so the, and this is this is prevalent in social media. You, now that I've said that, if you're on any of the tubes or any of the social media, you're going to see Karen now mm-hmm. all the time, and you're going to realize that's what people are talking about. Yeah. All right, let's move on, shall we, to a little bit of music now. Sexiest Man Alive is musician John Legend that has now been declared. I just ask one question. Who cares and why do we do this? Those are two questions, actually. But Laura, what? I don't know. The idea of the sexiest man alive, it does sort of feel outdated because people have... People has been doing this for so long, and they've typically been white, straight, really buff dudes. So I think John Legend is a refreshing sexiest man, but at the same time, who cares? Like, everyone has different opinions of what's sexy, and I think it's kind of strange that they mm-hmm. still title someone. Mira, also, do you, you feel refreshed? No. I mean, I felt refreshed last year when it was Idris Elba, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, like, John Legend, he's like the EGOT. Like, he's an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony Award winning man. And then we're like, oh, and he's also sexiest man. So it's sort of like such a downplay on his actual accolades. Like, when you're like, do you know what I'm saying? It's a little bit pathetic, I think. This like, feels, we should like, move this past feels that. like the bikini contest right? in, in a pageant. Yeah. Like, you know, like a 10 years too much of That's like, let's get I'm rid saying. of yeah. this. And, and now, now they have these other sidebar categories as sidebars. well. Like, they have sexiest silver fox and sexiest right. dad. I'm like, wait, so sexiest dad also can't be sexiest man? So it's a little, it all feels. Don't fence me in. Super outdated. <laughs> the Karens have no title currently in People Magazine. Sexiest Karen. <laughs> Let's move to Tay-Tay. What is going on with Taylor Swift and this whole thing that I she can't perform her music, but then the company says she can? What What is this? feel like another day, another Taylor drama. This is just the latest in Taylor's saga. She is saying now that the music that she previously recorded and sold the rights to is uh, basically being held hostage. She's saying that the former record label she was with is preventing her from performing this, from, you know, being able to be featured in a Netflix documentary. She's kind of gone off. And I want to say to Taylor, like, Cry Me a River, somebody else's song, um... Because she's like she sold this and now she wants it back and it's sort of a case of he she said he said but she's now brought in her Taylor troops because the she's Army. put it all on social and I guess she wants them to attack Big Machine which I feel like leave this to the lawyers like keep keep the public out of this. Leave us alone. Uh, I want to talk about something that we talked about on this program yesterday, and that is the new Disney Plus streaming service. Disney's new streaming service has added a disclaimer to a number of movies like Dumbo, Peter Pan, and other classics because they depict racist stereotypes. Dumbo from 1941. There are crows that help Dumbo learn to fly and are depicted with exaggerated black stereotypical voices. The lead crow's name is Jim Crow. I guess the question is, is a disclaimer too much? Enough? Should the movie actually be there at all, Mira? I I have to agree with some of the people that are criticizing this. Like, if you look at some of the... Warner Brothers actually has some of these disclaimers as well, but I think they're a lot more overt. Um, They say things like um, these... Uh, these cartoons may depict some of the ethnic and racial prejudices that were commonplace in American society. These depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. Like it's a very, Warner Brothers is a very outright statement, whereas Disney's is a little bit more 
little wishy-washy, maybe? Yeah, wishy-washy. And I feel like they need to make a very overt statement or simply remove that content. Yeah, I agree. I think the the disclaimer is very weak. It just says it may contain outdated cultural depictions. So that's sort of left up to interpretation. And Disney movies are notoriously filled with racial stereotypes, sexism, misogyny. Like there is a whole plethora of issues. And so I think it needs to be said more explicitly what is wrong in these films and then maybe have some resources or some follow-up if people are going to watch them. I guess the question comes to, like, what movies should we just take out altogether? We talked yesterday about Song of the South and the fact that that is not available on this service at all. And the CEO of Disney said that it is not going to be available perhaps never, ever again because of the racial depictions in that movie. And then you kind of ask yourself, okay... Should Birth of a Nation, I'm not sure if that's on there, but like other movies, like, you know, you talk about Breakfast at Tiffany's with the incredibly racist, uh, you know, depiction by Mickey Rooney. Should that movie be available? That's a really good question. I think it's hard because you can't necessarily erase all of these films. I mean, you can edit them, but then how do you learn from these, you know, mistakes of the past? I even think about Baby, It's Cold Outside, how John Legend, Mm -hmm. Sexy Man Alive. He's re-recorded it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so there's ways to modify, but I think the important thing here is recognizing that we've moved forward as a society and why that behavior was problematic. Mira? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think having a very overt and clear stance on it and a clear message and then maybe having the content there to view it in a different way as a learning tool might be a better solution. Mira Estrada is the host of Cultured, which can be heard right here on this radio station. And Laura Hensley is a Global News Online journalist. Always great to have both of you here. Thank you so much. Hit me with a funky beat before I go. Can I have this? Because it has been a long week, and there have been, yeah, another week of hard discussions. And here is my wish for all of us this weekend. Can we just have a couple of days where nobody does or says something stupid, where we all have to have a big family meeting collectively as a country to say, don't do that anymore. I hope you have a great weekend, folks. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll see you Monday.